this week on the Backtable Podcast. When I'm having a lot of trouble getting down and through, uh, what I end up doing more often than not now is I actually will take the needle and the cannula back into the, the sheath. And I'll take that cannula down and I'll take the needle down. And the needle never actually comes out of the main sheath. Mm-hmm. The cannula always leads. But what that needle becomes is it becomes a stiffener across the heart, right? Because when you're pushing, the sheath will bend in where it has the most room to bend, which is the right heart. And so if you can get that needle down across the heart into parenchymal, sometimes you have to torque it a little bit. Mm-hmm. What it'll allow you to do is it'll allow you to get that cannula through and around and then have the sheath follow. Uh, and the amount of pushability that you're able to get when you do that, uh, I've been able to get around, you know, almost 180 degree curves that way. And so the needle, you, know, you never want the needle coming out of the sheath or sure. the cannula. It is just like an extra uh, stiffener uh, and it works really, really well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all the previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter. Um, All those things work for us. Uh, Let us know how we can make this podcast a more valuable resource for the IR and endovascular community. RADPAD radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD protection for all your interventions. See RADPAD.com for more information and contact info at RADPAD.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. We have today Dr. Emmett Linsky. This is basically a continuation of a podcast that we recorded a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be talking about tips, techniques. So let's do the actual tips procedure. So will you take us through, and I think that your practice is, is kind of changed, but will you take us through the basic steps of like blind passes, uh, right hepatic? Actually, we can do right hepatic to right portal or middle to right, but just kind of a step-by-step basis of how a tips is actually done. Right. So we'll get, usually I get right uh, IJ axis. I'll go down um, with the 10 French uh, 38 centimeter sheath. I use an MPB uh, to select the right hepatic vein. So what I'll do is I'll go down, I'll take my catheter all the way, almost down to the renal vein. I'll ensure that it is, you know, based upon my cross-sectional, I want to see exactly uh, what the orientation of that right hepatic vein is coming off the IBC. Is it truly right? Is it right and slightly posterior? So I will point the catheter in that direction. I'll make sure that there's no wire leading because I want the catheter itself to do the seeking of the vein. I'll pull straight back. Once you hit that interhepatic IBC, your catheter will straighten out uh, because that's a little bit narrow part of the IBC. But as long as you don't torque and you maintain your orientation, uh, if you're true to what you really uh, had looked at ahead of time, you pull back and a lot of times it'll just pop into that vein and you'll see it all of a sudden go from being straightened out uh, to a little bit uh, kind of bobbing in and out of that vein. At which point, whatever wire you'd like to use, I tend to like to use an Advantage Glide in, in this instance, uh, though a Benson is kind of my second go-to. Uh, and again, the part of the reason why I like the Benson is that once you fold, uh, once you get it into the vein and it catches a small branch, 
it folds and then the folded Benson seeks the biggest vein. Right. Uh, and that is a really nice benefit that you know your Benson is going down that main hepatic vein. All right. So you kind of loop the Benson or, right. or whatever you, wire you have. Okay. Got it. Exactly. Uh, and then I will take a kind of right heart slash IBC slash hepatic vein IBC confluence pressure. Okay. I will take a free hepatic pressure. Uh, and again, for academic purposes, because I'm always interested to see uh, whether or not there is a large difference between a wedged pressure and the true portal pressure, I will always actually get a uh, either a balloon wedged or just an end hole catheter uh, wedged pressure because I'm convinced that uh, the transjugular liver biopsy pressures that we get aren't entirely accurate at all times. And so it's just a, you, you'll find that you know, if you do this regularly, you'll find that they're, they're, it's not always a perfect, like, oh, my pressure was 22. Like a lot of times I'll get a pressure of like seven uh-huh. and then, you know, the wedge. So Oh, no, so, you know, what what yeah. is what is the more accurate one that you're saying the wedge to the balloon occlusion? Uh, oh, both both of those are not. Uh, the, both of those are fine. You know, again, everyone does it a little bit differently. Uh, but you can get those pressures, and I would say maybe forty percent of the time they're significantly different than the actual portal. The actual portal, okay. Yeah, and so then you're like, you know, would you stop the tips? No, right? Because you know you have a strong sure. indication. But to be perfectly honest. I think that we need to have a larger discussion about the overall accuracy of our trans drug pressures. Uh, okay. Anyway. That's fair. That's fair. That, um, that's for a different podcast. Yeah. Hold on. So uh, also going back to like where you take your uh, right heart or your um, basically your systemic venous pressures, like you said, right heart, IBC, confluence, like, so you're not like precious about the location of that. I, I take all three. So I'll oh, take okay. a right gotcha. heart, I'll take an IBC, and then I'll take a free hepatic, which technically should be done within one centimeter of the origin of the, or kind of the confluence of the hepatic mm-hmm. vein in the IBC. So, you know, if you're doing say a Bud Chiari, you know, your IBC pressure might be 10 points higher than your right atrial pressure. And it's good to know that there is, you know, some physiologic changes or there's a web or, you know, any number of weird things that can happen. Most, more often than not, all three are within one millimeter of mercury of each other. Okay. All right. So at this point, you have uh, access in either the right or the middle hepatic vein. You have a catheter in. You've taken your pressures. um, Right. Then what's next? So I routinely will just do a puff or a run of the vein that I'm in just to make sure that there's no outflow obstruction, no web, uh, not something I'm missing there. Um, And then the next step is, from my perspective, is getting my sheath in. So everyone is a little bit different in the way they get their sheath in. My way I do it has evolved a little bit. So I'll kind of tell you the, the old way and the, the newer yep. way. Um, so the old way is I will, would either get a uh, one centimeter floppy Amplatz or a Nitrex. Uh, I don't really like the Nitrex for tips, so we'll just throw that out. Uh, or uh, So I get that. Uh, and I found that the seven centimeter uh, floppy on the Amplatz uh, is too long. And a lot of times there's not enough body in the wire to get around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would get that nice long 260 amp plats, but that one centimeter floppy would allow me to get my sheath in. If it went in bareback, great. Otherwise I would get the inner of the sheath, uh, in and do it over the wire that way. Uh, now I will make sure my catheter is way out and I will just put the back end of my 180 amp plats down. Nice. And I just won't let it go outside. Like the, the wire never goes outside the catheter. 
Gotcha. Uh, and then I just slide the sheath down that way. And it's just a poor man's way of getting a really stiff wire around. Uh, you know, I don't let my fellows do that. Uh, but I think that that's, it's, if, if you're in a hurry, that's a pretty good way to do it. So I do that. Once I get my sheath down, I will usually use either a, um, a Fogarty balloon or an N-hole catheter, and I will do a uh, CO2 venogram. Um, and, you know, more and more, I am less, I don't know, I'm more cautious than I used to be. So I used to always just do an end hole. Okay. Uh, and I, you know, I've had one fellow perfect capsule on me uh, in, you know, probably doing five or 600 uh, of these things. I've never perfect using the balloon, but anyway, whatever someone wants to do, I think they're equally as good. My biggest problem that I have with the CO2 venogram is it, there is a significant veno veno shunt. So from mm -hmm. right to a middle hepatic vein shunt, uh, it doesn't matter what you use. The veno veno shunt is going to suck up the CO2 and you're never going to see your portal vein. In those instances, I would do my, and I, if again, I don't have ice, I will do my portal venogram uh, through the needle uh, in the hepatic parenchyma. And that's, you know, a trick that I learned from Jim Cree. So I okay. think that you know, he gets full credit for that. Um, and, you know, again, so how important to you is the, the, you know, COT portogram? Like, is that like you're using that pretty significantly for planning? So when I was first starting out, I really felt like it was invaluable because I was literally aiming for a certain confluence of veins. Mm -hmm. um, it does not give you a actual spot where you could kind of put an X on your screen uh, and stick your needle in because when you start adding your needle, the portal vein will usually drop another centimeter or a centimeter and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that the general location uh, of where you were trying to hit is very important, particularly if it correlates with your cross-sectional imaging. And you know, one of the things that I try to really uh, emphasize with my fellows is being academically honest with yourself, right? Uh, because on occasion, once you get into a portal vein, you're just happy that you got in and you're willing to accept anything. Uh, and really the question should be, you know, what was I intending to do and did I intend to hit that branch and, you know, does that all kind of correlate with what my plan was? And if it right. doesn't, you know, sometimes you can have an outcome that you don't really like. Okay. All right. So you've done your portogram and you have uh, an idea from your cross-sectional and the, the CO2 portogram where you want to access. I guess it's a good point as any to take a time out and just talk about the different tip sets and which one you use and which one you like, or do you switch in and out of them? Um, so I, I use the Colapinto. Okay. Uh, I, and I have, you know, I, I during um, fellowship on occasion, we would use some other sets. Um, and I just, I've gotten to the point where I like the torque um, and I'll, I'll use the cook, uh, the cook set with a Colapinto needle. Um, Part of the reason why is I just feel like I get really good torque on it. And for some of the adjunct techniques that I like to use, I've found that a needle that big actually will allow you to put some other things down it that you wouldn't think about needing. Like uh, you, know, you can fit a 15 millimeter snare through it okay. um, if you're doing gun sight and that helps drop the hepatic vein. So if you're trying to do a gun sight, you can get your angles better. So there's a lot of stuff that I kind of like about it. The other thing I like is that if you're having trouble or 
uh, a little bit uncertain, you can coaxially put a 21 gauge, 65 centimeter uh, Chiba needle uh, through that. Their cook makes a 21 centimeter, 65 needle that will actually go coaxially through uh, the colopental needle. And so you can turn that needle and then go with a 21 gauge and make throws that way okay. um, if, if you need to. So uh, that's, that's my preference. I have gotten away from using that in non-serotics. Um, so I will make one to two passes max in a non-serotic with a colopental, uh, needle. Otherwise it will, I've, you know, in given personal experience, just chewed up livers, uh, trying and trying and trying. So I tend to be, I will go gun sight on a non-serotic very, very, very quickly now, gotcha. um, for those reasons. All right. So then we have your, uh, preferred tip set, uh, you're making passes. And so what do you oh, think so, for, you know, actually, let me, let me stop you there. So in terms of getting the needle down, yeah, right. So I have my sheep in and there are two ways to get the needle down. You can get it in over the wire or you can go bareback. You know, I think that there are people who do it both ways. I tend to prefer to do it over my wire. Uh, but realistically you could shear your wire. If you have the needle inside the cannula and you're leading with the cannula and you're careful, you once the sheath is in, it's protected. And you could also argue that you could just put your needle in straight away. Uh, and so once I get my needle in and my needle is tip to tip to tip, so my needle, that cannula and the sheath are tip to tip to tip, uh, I tend to pin pull the sheath back to the point where I'm comfortable. And then I start to torque my, you know, torque my needle. One of the things that my fellows tend to fixate on is how physically when they actually look at their hand how turned the needle is mm -hmm. i think that the better way to kind of get a sense of how much you've torqued is how vertical the needle is going um, and so what i want them to look at when i'm saying like well how anterior have you torqued is not that the you know that the cannula is pointed you know straight up it's how how much has the needle straightened out on the screen okay uh, before i make my throw uh, because that can really give you a lot of sense. And so then, you know, I'll go in, uh, make my passes. I tend to like to use just a standard syringe filled with 60 C's half and half contrast on the back of my Polipinto rather than like a polycarbonate syringe. You know, it's a quirk of mine, but I feel like I get better suction. I make my throw, I aspirate back. Uh, I see if I can get uh, blood. If I feel like I've really made a great pass and I'm not getting blood, I'll kind of come all the way back. If I don't get that rush of blood in the hepatic vein, mm -hmm. you know, it's realistic that you've clotted off your needle and that can happen. Um, once you get a true, uh, you know, puff of blood, one of the things you have to realize is that the needle's pretty long. And so if you're just coming back too quickly, if you don't give time for the blood to get from the portal vein up your needle into your syringe, you might just go blow through a small branch. Gotcha. Um, and then I'll puff. Uh, and when I puff, it's just to get the lay of the land uh, to see if I'm in a portal branch. Okay. Um, you know, and I think that that is a, a crucial step because if I feel like I'm in a good portal branch, I, I'll go with wire. If I'm not really certain, if I'm in a great portal branch, I'll try to inject a little bit harder and then reflux. If I'm not really sure, I'll inject CO2 at that point. And I think that one of the things that people forget is CO2 is so low viscosity that it will reflux very, very nicely from that teeny little portal branch to give you a direction and a map of where you need to go. There are a couple of things I want to talk about. So 
One was the syringes that you use. When we were doing them, you were big about just using a slip, uh, like a plastic slip tip syringe. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it would not yeah, yeah. flip tip, but just like the, the plastic. Or lower liner plumbing okay. stick. Okay. And then the other was uh, blowing through the portal vein. Um, some people may have uh, missed that, but, you know, the the needle is, I forgot exactly how long the needle is, is it like 40 some odd centimeters, 45 yeah. centimeters. Yeah. And so if you're aspirating when you're pulling back, you know, there's a distance you have to travel. And so there's likelihood if you're doing a very quick pullback that you're going to miss the portal flow that's in your needle. Um and the other is um, the puff of contrast to get a lay of the land. When you talk about like what's a like you kind of mentioned like oh if I'm in a, a small side bridge what like what's the ideal situation when you you're you're pulling back your needle you get that that uh, blood return and then you puff contrast what's ideally what you want to see? So that that's a good question. So what I want to see when I'm doing that puff of contrast is I want to see a what size branch of portal vein did I hit? Is it true to what I thought I was wanting to hit, number one. Number two, it's where where is central. Sometimes you can be completely confused as to exactly what you hit and you don't know where central portal vein is where you're trying to go with your wire. And then third is, am I filling anything else? You know, did I go through an artery while I was hitting it? So am I filling two things? So those are the three things I'm really looking for. And I'll do my first puff uh, and if everything looks very small and diminutive, like I'm in a tiny little side branch, that's when I'll switch to CO2 to see if maybe I'm really close or I've gone through and through. And the CO2 really gives you a much bigger picture uh, in lay of the land there. Okay. So you, it seems like you have just CO2 on the ready. So are you guys uh, using like the commander or just have some CO? Okay. Right. So, so we use the commander. Your yeah. So all, all your tips, you got CO2 prepped and ready. Uh, right. So... Once you've accessed, uh, will you talk about accessing to central versus accessing peripheral? Like where's your uh, optimal access site for the portal system? So I, again, everyone's a little bit different sure, here. And sure. I think there, there are a number of right answers. I tend to like to access the confluence of the posterior right portal vein and kind of the anterior right portal vein. So I, that's, that would be my perfect spot. Now, everyone's a little bit different. Uh, part of the reason why I like that is that if my ring is going to kind of land just inside kind of that right portal, uh, then my uncovered will extend. And if I'm lucky, you know, even my uncovered won't necessarily cover up the left. Okay. Um, on occasion, if I'm going with like a really small tips, uh, my little old ladies, I actually like to access a little bit more central. Uh, which gives me a little bit more of a vertical tips. And in, I can, you know, fortunately dilate that only up to six uh, and it'll stay open. You know, the, the curve of the tips, uh, if you're not going to open it up all the way up to eight, uh, the more curve it has in it, the, the higher chance that when you don't open it up all the way, it's going to thrombose pretty quickly. Okay. Um, all right. Um, so... Now that you've accessed, you've got a suitable um, uh, access site, like say you access in that perfect location where the, the uh, interior and posterior branches of the right portal vein uh, confluence in, what are the next things that you do? And because and this, this can kind of be like a difficult point in that you know you're in, you've got your, you know, you've got a, a reasonable lay of the land. And so getting your wire and sheath uh, into the portal system can, this can, you know, sometimes be a tricky part of the procedure. Right. 
So the, the next thing I do is, you know, you have to decide what wire you're going to go with. And usually I'll go with one or two wires. My go-to right now and that I've been doing uh, for a while is I'll use an advantage okay. uh, wire. Uh, one of the risks of the advantage is that your needle tip can, you know, shear off the, the tip of the wire. And it has happened to me. I had a fellow, you know, where that, that's happened. Um, and you know, we end up having to snare it, yada, yada. But I think for the most part, it gives you some good body. You're less likely to, um, buckle your sheath out of the hepatic vein as you're trying and working. Cause you have a little bit more body there and it, you know, it's got a seeking tip. Mm -hmm. Uh, my general thought is I'm not really too worried if I am trying with that and it is only going distal right? I can't make the turn yeah, yeah. or my angle, not going distal. That's fine. Uh, I accept that. Uh, if it goes central, then, you know, and I'll start with that. So if my wire go, you know, my advantage wire goes central, it goes into the portal vein and I, I like to get down the SMV okay. uh, because it ends up being a straighter shot in my mind, uh, for your pushing. Uh, and when you're pushing the vectors of torque tend to kind of work, work better uh, going straight down. Okay. So I like to get down the SMB. I will then take a four French glide cath. Uh, so I'll take, you know, the needle off. Yep. Right. Then I'll take a four French glide cath and I leave the cannula in because that cannula provides a little bit more support and I'm a little okay. less likely to buckle out. So yeah, you do get some back bleeding, but I feel like keeping the cannula in the four French glide cath will go over that wire and get into the SMB. And I always puff. Okay. Um, at this point. So I just want to make sure I'm in a portal. Sometimes I'll take a direct pressure. Doesn't really matter. Uh, but that's the point at which I say, all right, now I'm switching back to my working wire, which is my amp plats. Gotcha. So that's one. The other option is when your wire goes distally rather than right, centrally. Right. And in those instances, the first thing I will do is I'll let the wire go out. I will get my four French glide cats down. And then I will switch out for a Benson wire. Okay. Uh, and in that instance, I'll switch out for the Benson and then I'll pin pull my four French glide cat back to just outside of where I went in. And I'll just start pushing with the Benson and we'll use the, I call it the Benson flop technique or whatever, yeah. where basically what you're doing is you're pushing into some tiny side branch and allowing the Benson to flop down the main. Okay. I would say that works maybe 60 or 70% of the time. Uh, and then the other 30% of the time, uh, rather than using a four French glide cath, if the Benson has failed, I'll take a Mariner rim, uh, which is a very tight, uh, or like a BNK catheter. It's a very okay. tight catheter and I'll actually get it out and I'll just puff it back. And then I'll just torque the catheter cause it has such a tight turn. And then I'll use that to send a uh, advantage glide out. Okay. So those are the, the three ways. Yeah. So a couple of different ways. I think commonly people talk about the Benson like flop technique where you send it distally and then it kind of just falls over itself. All right. So now you have a wire, uh, you know, preferentially, um, you know, it, it can, people have their different preferences, but like in yours, the SMB, um, and then now talk about, uh, what you do next. Like, is yeah. it like, how, how do you get your sheath through? Is it, uh, do you do a balloon dilation? Do you, um, use the set to dilate? So, yeah. So, the, the next step for me is, you know, I'll take my cannula out and I get a 6.4 balloon down and I use a 6.4 balloon to balloon the tract before I even uh, try to do anything else. And so as I balloon the tract and one of the things I've learned is you have to balloon not only the portal vein entrance, but actually where you go through the hepatic vein because sometimes okay. your sheath will get stuck there. Sure. 
and I just daughter the sheath over and I get the sheath. It, you know, it doesn't have to get into the portal vein. I just want my balloon to have gotten into the portal vein and that whole track to be dilated. Okay. You know, the sheath is big enough to occlude that for the most part. And then I'll get my pigtail down. Uh, once the pigtail is down, I'll actually back my sheath out back into the uh, hepatic vein and do, mm-hmm. do my dual run. So I'll do my dual run, you know, through the pigtail and through the sheath. I always preload my sheath at that point because, you know, the sheath will hold six or seven cc's of contrast. Gotcha. I always inject the pigtail first because it's a little higher resistance and it takes time for that portal system to fill, you know, and then when you're injecting uh, the sheath, you know, that you can get those 10 cc's in in about a half a second. I actually, you know, early on when I'm with my fellows in the first half of the year, I'll up the frame rate to three or four frames a second just so I can catch a good picture. You know, otherwise I just use two frames a second there. Okay. So maybe can you talk about uh, that dual run and what you're trying to see and why, like, because I think that some people who aren't as familiar with the procedure maybe have glossed over this, that you're doing an injection through your sheath. So your 10 French sheath with it positioned in the hepatic vein. And then you also, you have a pigtail down in the portal vein. And what are you looking for during this run? All right. So during that run, I'm looking for two things. One, I want to confirm for myself where I entered the portal vein. And then two, I want to get a sense of exactly where the confluence is between the hepatic vein and the IVC. Uh, and then because I'm using a marking pigtail, what the you know purpose of that is, is to get a sense of how long of a tips I need. Uh, and so I am measuring, usually I'll come in about a half centimeter from where I think I entered the, the portal vein and I'll measure back to uh, right at the hepatic vein uh, IVC confluence. And so Sometimes it'll be five, six, seven uh, centimeters. Um, and that's, you know, so I can know how long of a Viator stent I need. So that's that's the purpose of the dual run. Most tips are formed with the Viator stent. And what is unique about the Viator stent is a partially covered, partially uncovered stent. There are two centimeters at the end, uh, sorry, at the portal end of the Viator stent that are uncovered, followed by a variable length of covered by a tor stent that goes through the parenchyma of the liver and into the hepatic vein. Uh, and so what you're trying to do is ideally you're trying to leave the uh, uncovered portion in your portal system and have the covered portion along the parenchymal tract uh, and extending uh, into the hepatic vein. Uh, some people uh, like to go to the hepatic vein confluence. Some people like to go into the IBC. I think part of the reason why I le- try to leave it right at uh, the IBC uh, hepatic vein confluence mm-hmm. is that my transplant surgeons prefer that. They would rather have me declaw the tips than uh, have me leave it too long and have problems with cross clamping or dealing with the tips. Um, every place is different. Uh, I acknowledge uh, that my patency rates will probably be lower and I probably will have to extend a stent more often or have to plasty because of that. Um, but, you know, that's something that has been worked out over years. Sure. So the trade-off is uh, landing your stent a little short in the hepatic vein, less issue with surgery on the back end, but oftentimes it in, includes like maybe you have to go tune it up or extend the stent versus like some people will just like hang it in the IVC, in which case it creates a a little bit of an issue for your surgeons on the back end, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the trade-off. Yeah, so that so once I've done my dual run, the, the next step that you have to realize is that you, you know what stent you need, but your sheath is not in the portal vein. Right. Uh, and so 
one of the things, you know, and I've seen a tips placed into the uh, hepatic vein accidentally because the sheath wasn't uh-huh. down. So I refuse to open my tip stent until my sheath is down. And it's just kind of like a, yeah, warding off evil spirits type okay. thing. Okay. Fair enough. So the the next step is getting your sheath down. And this early on was the cause of some of my longest tips. Um, and so there are kind of two or three ways that I try to get my sheath down. So I have my six millimeter track that I've already created. Mm-hmm. I would say 80% of the time I can just put the uh, inner cannula, sorry, the, the inner dilator of the sheath in. Okay. And the sheath will go down. And I would say that that's what I use most of the time. On occasion, I'll need to get the balloon back down and I'll just daughter the sheath over the balloon. Sometimes I'll need to up the balloon size to an eight. Okay. That's fine. When I'm having a lot of trouble uh, getting down and through, uh, what I end up doing more often than not now is I actually will take the needle and the cannula back into the, the sheath and I'll take that cannula down and I'll take the needle down and the needle never actually comes out of the main sheath. Mm-hmm. The cannula always leads, but what that needle becomes is it becomes a stiffener across the heart, right? Because when you're pushing, the sheath will bend in where it has the most room to bend, which is the right heart. And so if you can get that needle down across the heart into parenchyma, sometimes you have to torque it a little bit. Mm-hmm. What it'll allow you to do is it'll allow you to get that cannula through and around and then have the sheath follow. Uh, and the amount of pushability that you're able to get when you do that uh, I've been able to get around, you know, almost 180 degree curves that way. Um, and so the needle, you know, you never want the needle coming out of the sheath or sure. the cannula. It is just like an extra uh, stiffener uh, and it works really, really well. And, you know, it's, on occasion I go back and forth saying, you know what, I'm just going to do that every time. But I think that, you know, getting that in and, you know, some of the back bleeding that you get, it makes it not worth it. Okay, that's fair. I don't know if I've, I've heard this before, but I, I heard that that the system like the when they build the tip sets that's actually how they intend on people using it like you dilate over the needle using the cannula is that is that i don't know if that's true or not. right i mean it, and if you think about it, it makes perfect sense like yeah. you, you know the part of the thought is you have your needle in right. you get your wire down and the needle is in the vein and so that cannula is designed to actually just slip over that and you can actually you know because i kind of learned this other way i never really did it that way, but it makes perfect sense. You have sure. great pushability uh, over that needle and, uh, you know, you can get things to do, you know, you get pushability that you never even imagined before. Yeah. Um, all right. So now that, and I will say that, like, it's funny that you said that's sometimes the longest part of the procedure. I think most of the time what people associate with the longest part of the procedure is actually getting access into the portal. Um, but I, I think this can also be like a sticking point where like the tips bogs down. Um, so. I forgot at this point, have you taken pressures at this point before you've dilated? So good question. So I take pressures with, that's a, a, a good sticking point. So I take my pressures with my sheath in the parenchymal tract that I created through the pigtail catheter before I do my dual run. Okay. So I'll do it then and then I'll pin pull that sheath back and I'll actually take an additional right atrial pressure uh, at the same time. So because of the fluid shifts, because of anesthesia, I want to make sure that, you know, again, this is more academic purposes, mm-hmm. that my gradient is actually a true gradient. Uh, and rather than something from the beginning of the procedure when the patient had eight liters of fluid still on their belly. Okay. 
Fair enough. All right. So now that you've, uh, can you talk about like the, the way you size your stint or uh, mm-hmm. I think we kind of touched on it. Um, you talked about the landing zone, but like, is there a little uh, like fudge factor built in? Right. And so a lot of people will measure from where they entered the portal bean to the hepatic bean confluence and add one centimeter. Mm-hmm. And I think that in general, if you're going to do that, that's a great rule of thumb. Okay. And part of the reason why is you are never going to get that ring pulled all the way back to where you entered the portal vein. Like it just, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you do, you're going to, you know, it, it's just the way that the, the tips is designed, there's still a little bit of flare. And so it's going to watermelon seed ever so slightly forward when you do it anyway. Okay. So I think that from, from my perspective, when you add that one centimeter, it's a little bit of a fudge factor for you not pulling back as far. And from the fact that it's probably going to slide forward ever so slightly. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about stint deployment? Like, um, right. Right. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. So stent deployment. So the first thing is, you know, the, the uncovered portion of the stent is housed in a plastic cover. Uh, and that has to stay on because you, as soon as that plastic cover comes off, the end of the stent will flare. And depending on the sheath, so if you're using the gore sheath, it's clear and you can actually see that plastic go all the way in. If you're using the cook sheath, a lot of times it'll push in, catch, and then push in a little bit further. And there's a little black line to help you know that you went that far. <laughs> then you push your tips uh, stent all the way in. And I ended up going tip to tip uh, with my sheath, uh, okay. which is well into the portal bane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, everyone's a little bit different. I end up then, once the tips is in relatively good position, maybe two to three centimeters deeper than I would like it, right. I unsheath the, the stent, which will then allow the, end, the uncovered end to expand. Uh, and then I pull my sheath actually all the way back to the right atrium. And so it's, it's completely out of the way. Uh, and then now I just have my tip stent, which is too deep, uh, mm-hmm. opened up. And then I pull back under fluoro and I watch that ring uh, come back to where I entered the portal vein. Okay. Uh, and one of the important things is that because you do all your runs on breath hold, if you're trying to think of a landmark, it's better to have your anesthesiologist hold respirations while you're pulling the stent back because then you're going to get an apples to apples comparison of where you really want your ring to be. That's an important thing because what, what otherwise happens is you're going to leave your stent about a centimeter forward uh, compared to where you thought you did. Uh, so I do that. I pull. Sometimes if you're looking really carefully, you'll see the ring narrow down a little bit. I think that that's often a good sign. And again, now that I use ice, I actually pull it back under ice and it's really fun to watch because you can, you know, it's see exactly it's it's visually just very, very fun to to see. Anyway, I'm sure we'll get into that later. Yeah. Is and is there, um, like, can you describe, like, there's a tactile sensation also when you catch on the parenchyma? Right. So at first, it's, you know, you as you're pulling back the tips, it's hard to get it going, right? Mm-hmm. So you pull back, you pull back, it's hard to get going. And then all of a sudden, it starts to slide. And then as you pull back and you start to catch, it becomes very difficult to pull. And usually what I'll do is I'll kind of cinch it in there and I'll give it one more gentle tug to kind mm-hmm. of get a little bit more in. And now with, I don't know if there's a real change, but in my mind, there was a change that once they went to the controlled expansion stent, I feel like I want to have a little bit additional back tension on the tip. So I actually hold a little bit of back tension while I deploy it. Okay. And I feel like that 
allows the back end of the tips when it catches on the hepatic vein to be a little bit more true. I think that that might be a little bit of hocus pocus, but that that's what I end up doing. Okay. Um, and then once the tips is deployed, you, know, you pin pull your, your stent casing uh, out. And then more often than not, depending on the patient, depending on what their gradient was, I'll actually balloon to six because I already have the balloon ready. And I'll just take a pressure to get a sense of where I sit. Uh, and if I balloon to six and, you know, I recognize that that's not what the stent is going to kind of grow to. It's usually sure. up to 10. Controlled expansion means it can be eight, nine, or 10, depending on what you balloon it to. But if I only have a six millimeter track, it gives me a sense of how much room I have as I dilate. And so what I'll do is I'll balloon to six, take pressures. If my gradient is, say, nine, oh, then... Before you- Wait, before you before you get into that, only I wanted to lay the groundwork for the gradients and what your goals are here because you know there's it's easy to um, you know a lot, there's a lot of built in knowledge there. You're right. There's okay. a lot of literature out there looking at gradients, and some of the older literature suggested that you the lower the gradient, the better things would work. Uh, some of the newer literature is suggesting that you actually don't necessarily need to lower the gradient to a certain amount. It's actually a percentage of the original. And okay. so if you go from 24 to 12, the, the large delta that you have and a large percentage difference is actually more important. I still kind of ascribe to a combination of the two. That's, okay. that's where I end up coming down. So if that's, I'm- That's the way smart play. You pick both. Right. Both are what you If I'm doing ascites, I love to have the people- between six and eight millimeters of mercury gradient. That's where I like to go. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing it for a bleed, I love to have them less than 10. Okay. That's kind of my general rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, I rarely can get it as perfect as I want. Sure. Uh, I have found that the smaller people, the smaller you are, the more increase in right heart pressure that you're going to get. And they can probably deal with a six or seven millimeter tips rather than eight, nine, or 10. Okay. Uh, and I think that if, if we're lucky one day, we will also get a six to eight tips uh, because it's very rare that I actually need someone to get to nine or 10. Um, and I think that that's just a, a sheerly a function of hemodynamics. But anyway, uh, so six to eight for my fluid patients, my hydrothorax, my ascites, uh, less than 10 otherwise. And I'll, I'll usually go sequential. So if the gradient's huge, I'll start with an eight. Or if the patient's young and healthy, mm-hmm. uh, young and healthy being less than 60 and decently sized, I'll just start with an eight and then check pressures after the six. If they're older and frail, I'll go seven, check pressures, and then go eight, check pressures if I need to. It's rare that I need to go more than that. Uh, the groups that I found that I just need to go to 10 are my portomesenteric thrombosis. If you are a non-serotic with portomesenteric thrombosis, usually the JAK2 patients, I'm just going to 10. It's, you know, I've wasted a lot of time having these patients re-thrombose and, you know, it's because they don't have the tips big enough. Okay, good tip. Um, So if I can recap, so six to eight for your fluid patients, um, under 10, uh, or I'm sorry for, yeah, a a little bit under 10, or was it eight to 10 for the bleeders? Yeah, under 10 for the bleeders. Okay, gotcha. All right, so at this point, the tips is in, you've dilated either, you know, sequentially from six, seven, eight, possibly to 10. Um, and then, I mean, 
here, I feel like all the heavy lifting is done. What are some of the final things you do? Um, and before, well, so what are some of the final things you do, assuming you're not going to embolize, and then we'll come back to embolization? Right. So the uh, the first thing I do is, you know, my tips is in, I'm happy with my gradient. I think one of the important things is I actually, because I'm trying to keep contrast down, I won't do a good run until I'm happy with the gradient. Okay. Uh, because there's no point in doing a run and then seeing the gradients 14 and being like, okay, well, I'm going to have to balloon it anyway. Sure. Um, so I'll do, I do two runs at the end now. Uh, one of the runs I do at the end is just from the portal vein. I just want to kind of get a real sense of, you know, from the portal vein, where is the flow going? Is there any integrated flow into the left? Am I happy with how it's going through? How much reflux am I getting in the heart? Then the second one I uh, like to do is I like to do a, a fairly distal splenic run. Uh, just to get a sense of if there are any varices or any short gastrics that are still filling. Um, usually at this point, the coronary vein is not filling uh, if I've done a pretty good job, but on occasion you'll see like a splenorenal that's still filling or something like that. If the patient is, you know, not a bleeder and has never had a history of bleeding or varices, a lot of times I'll just leave it be and see how they do. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is generally uh, my go-to is if they don't have significant encephalopathy or don't have a significant history of bleeding, I don't touch the varices on the first go, even if they're kind of slowly filling at the end. Mm -hmm. If they have a significant history of bleeding or I'm doing it for bleeding or they have a significant history of encephalopathy, I will more likely than not plan on doing a BATOs and or BRTO at the same time. Okay, gotcha. Your final runs are done. Um, let's talk about patients that you are going to embolize and kind of how you handle that. Like either they have, um, you know, some persistent short gastrics or you're going to go shunt, uh, shut down a shunt. Um, what's your technique uh, for that? And what do you use for embolic? Uh, you know, I, in the end, I haven't really settled on anything great. Mm -hmm. uh, what in a perfect world, what I would really like to do is sclerose all these varices. Uh, and so if I can get a good seal uh, and I can get my uh, sclerosin to stay, or I think I can get my sclerosin to stay, uh, I'll go up, I'll put a Fogarty balloon up into the varix. I will uh, embolize it with uh, a combination of sclerosin, lipidol, gel foam, you know, everyone does something a little bit different. I mm -hmm. tend to like to add a little gel foam because it's pretty thrombotic. Uh, and I feel like it gives me a little bit more of a pasty feeling and it slows things down. Uh, and then through with the, the Fogarty still up, I will then coil behind it. Okay. So through my Fogarty balloon, I'll, you know, put a coil pack in uh, to the barracks. And I found that the, you know, again, it's the Azure CXs, the 035 Azure CXs will go through quite nicely. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, if things aren't going well, then I'll use a microcatheter out the end of the forward and you go with a microcatheter. You know, it's, it's kind of a dealer's choice, but you know, the idea is, you know, holding, you know, basically doing like a, basically a plug assisted or sorry, a um, coil assisted antigrade transvenous obliteration. Got um, you know, more and more, uh, you know, for those varices, there's multiple inflows. Uh, they're going up the corner and their outflows. Um, a couple of my partners and I have experimented taking a microcatheter way, way out, putting a coil distally and just injecting a little bit of glue. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the glue catches on the coil and you thrombose all the way back. Uh, we've had some good success with that. And sometimes, you know, if it's just a flow issue and I'm not so worried about bleeding or recanalizing the varices, I'll just put a, I'll put a little Amplatzer plug in there or a pack of coils. 
Okay. So it just depends on the situation. Gotcha. Um, all right. So at this point, the stint is up. Um, you've coiled what you've had to. You have a good run. Oh, I guess one thing I wanted to do was uh, unpack a little bit about that run. For your for your final portogram, are, are, you, are you just doing a hand injection? What are you looking for? And um, maybe like some basics like frame rate. Right. So for the final run, uh, I'm doing a frame rate of uh, two frames a second. Okay. Uh, I'm using a 20cc syringe uh, hand injection uh, through a pigtail, marking pigtail that I've had opened before. Uh, the things that I'm looking for there are one, filling of any varices, but secondarily, really what I'm looking for is what is the flow dynamic of the blood going into the liver? Is there integrated flow into the left? Uh, is there integrated and then kind of reverse flow into the left? Is there any flow into the right? And part of that is not so much for when I'm done, because I'm happy with my gradient. I'm going to accept it, whatever it looks like. Mm -hmm. but really what it informs on is when I get the follow-up ultrasound, I often will get a reading of integrate flow in the left portal vein, sign up tips dysfunction. And I can go back and look at my run and I see on my run that there was integrate flow in the left and I was actually quite happy with it. And so I can kind of dismiss that. So really understanding what the flow dynamics of perfect is in my mind uh, sets me up for being able to evaluate it down the line. And that's really what the final run is for me more than anything else. And I guess I'll also point out to the audience that you uh, did air quotes for perfect, but no one could see those. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So now, now the tips is done. Um, so let's, let's talk follow-up and, uh, or really post-procedural care. How long are you keeping these patients and what are some of the things you do? Actually, what, what are some of the things that you and anesthesia do almost immediately after the procedure? Right. So one of the things that I've found is that early on, I was having a bunch of patients complaining of chest pain in the PACU. And given that chest pain in the PACU, they would get the full troponin workup EKG. Uh, and I always felt like it was from increased right heart pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I've started doing, if a patient has relatively normal creatinine, at the end of the tips, I'll give them between 10 and 20 milligrams of IV Lasix. And that anytime I've given that Lasix uh, over the last maybe now five or six years, you know, again, really making sure that their creatinine is okay to start out with, I have not had a single complaint of chest pain. Uh, whereas before it was pretty routine, you know, maybe once, once a month. So like, you know, one out of every four tips, someone complained of chest pain. So that is, that's one of the first things that I do. And I think that, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it saved me a lot of heartache of, you know, doing these cardiac workups that, you know, were effectively worth, worthless. Patient always has to stay overnight. Uh, they go up to PACU. I generally like to start patients on lactulose uh, after they've had their first meal. So they wake up, they go upstairs. I make sure they're on their lactulose. I keep them on their home diuretic regimen, uh, you know, barring any problems with kidneys that I'm worried about. Uh, and then in terms of my follow-up, uh, you know, the, the newer stents, because they have kind of this extra layer to allow the adjustability, uh, take a little bit longer for the air to clear between the layers. Okay. And so what I do is I set my patients up for a two-week ultrasound, labs, and clinic visit. And so the thought being, they can come get their ultrasound, they get their labs kind of that same day, I get the results, and they see me in clinic all at the same time. And, um, you know, if... I'm worried about encephalopathy 
in those patients, I tell them uh, before they leave that I'm not worried about encephalopathy on day one or two. I'm worried about encephalopathy on kind of day three, four, and five. Okay. Uh, and so I want them having three bowel movements a day. Uh, and I speak to their spouse uh, pretty extensively about this, not only in clinic ahead of time, uh, but also on discharge. I institute uh, lactulose on everybody. I write uh, Zyfaxin for everybody. Now, it doesn't always get covered. And I tell them, if you're going to get a bill for $800 to get it, don't fill it. Sure. Uh, but if it's, if you can get it for 40 bucks, you know, the Zyfaxin is a wonderful pill that you can take once, you know, twice a day uh, and really prevent the encephalopathy. And that's in addition to the lactulose. They both. Right. Okay. Uh, in, in, if I, in a perfect world, I would be able to start everyone on Zyfaxin. Uh, and if they failed Zyfaxin, I would go over to lactulose. Uh, the problem is, is that it's too expensive. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it would be a great study, right, to, to randomize sure. people to lactulose, Zyfaxin or nothing and see if they had it. Uh, so anyway, I, I write for that. I talk to the patients extensively. And if they live alone, I, uh, we will call them every day during the first week. Okay. Um, and that is just to get a sense of, are they having any signs of encephalopathy? Are they confused? Are they having their bowel movements? Are they taking your, their lactulose? Otherwise, usually I'll just have my NP check in at the end of the first week, knowing that the clinic visit at two weeks uh, will really let me see if they're passing the eye test. If you're a little bit limited on resources, I think the two-week visit's a little early and you could bump it out, maybe get the labs and the ultrasound at two weeks and then see them at one month. And at one month, I want to see a decrease in ascites, but I would not expect it to go away altogether at one month. I'm looking for lower extremity edema uh, at one month. I am looking to see how the patient's creatinine is done, how their bile is done. Uh, and then generally, uh, more and more, I'm interested in their overall nutritional status because that tends to be a good harbinger of how they're going to do long-term. Um, and so if I talk to the patient and they've gained weight or I see a little bit more fullness in their face, but they still have ascites, it'll go away. Um, if they still look gaunt and thin and they don't feel a lot better, uh, you know, then I'm starting to be concerned that, you know, either the tips, you thrombosed in the meantime, or I didn't open it up enough, or I need to increase the diuretics a little bit, that they still have portal hypertension that is, you know, causing their lack of appetite. And the other concern sometimes is that the patient's still drinking. Sure. And I tell people, look, if you are still having ascites, I'm going to assume I did something wrong, but there, if you are drinking, it will kill you and the tips won't work. And, you know, I probably have six or seven patients who, you know, I revised the tips, they swore up and down, they weren't drinking. Uh, and then eventually we found out that they were, uh, and that's, and that's why. So, you know, it's, it's always, you have to remember that if there's con continued insult to the liver, uh, sometimes what you're doing not only won't help, it'll make things worse. Sure. Sure. So there's a, there's a lot there to talk about and like the, the follow-up, but one of the things I want to touch on, uh, is that two week ultrasound, any decisions being made off of that, or you're just using that as your baseline, uh, for an ultrasound moving forward. Right. So I'm using it as a baseline. Again, my assumption is that I left the tips pretty close to perfect. And if I only dilated it to six or seven, mm -hmm. I want to see, I want to know, is there a kink? And I'm actually looking at the pictures rather than the read. Sure. Uh, more than anything. Uh, sometimes you can see a kink in the tips because you just didn't open it up enough. Okay. Uh, so that's the one thing. But uh, at the eight, nine, 10 level, 
it's just a baseline, to be perfectly honest with you. And I think that it is, uh, if you get it too early, I've had uh, my hepatology team, if I'm doing a tips on an inpatient, will always get an ultrasound the next day. And my residents will always read it as thrombosed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's try as I might. Uh, and trying to convince them that there is air shadowing. They're like, no, no, no. It's, it's <laughs> no, it's down. It's yeah. Down. Well, that's helpful. One of the other things that I wanted to uh, just uh, pause and, and recognize was how important it is to counsel not just your patient, but also like any caretaker or spouse. Because when these patients become uh, encephalopathic, then a lot of times, you know, even with the best of intentions, you know, their situation become worse whenever they're not taking their medications. And so it can kind of spin out. Um, and so it's important to educate not just the patient, but also any family members, right? Right. And I think that you, what I've done, and, you know, maybe this was since you've left, is that of all of the problems I have, and if anyone has a knock against us as IRs, is that when we cause a problem, we don't really mm-hmm. sit there and fix it. And I know that there's no literature to support um starting preemptive actualos, right? That's we, there's, there's no good literature out there. Sure. Uh, however, when I see patients in clinic before tips, I start them all on lactulose before I do the tips. And here's the logic why I do that. You know, I don't start them on a full dose. I ask them to take one tablespoon a day just to, to try. And it does two things. One, it gets the prescription in their house. Okay. okay? That's an important thing. And two, it gets them used to the taste. And if someone, a caregiver, is giving you a medicine every single day, and that's just part of your deal, when they happen to slip you twice as much because you're encephalopathic, you take it. Uh, If you try to introduce a sickly sweet tasting, weird new medicine, when someone's acutely encephalopathic and you're expecting them to call the doctor, and then go to CVS and pick up the prescription and then get it and then feed it to their loved one, like five, it's just not going to work. Yeah. Uh, and so it's part of the reason why I prescribe that early. And it's part of the reason why I prescribe the Zyfaxin early, right? I'm expecting the Zyfaxin to be denied, but I want to actually start working on the exception before they have the encephalopathy. So I've already kind of gone through two or three of those layers of difficulty. And if, you know, by some chance it's, low cost, great. Uh, but if I have to go through two or three layers, I'm saving myself weeks of trouble. And then the hepatologist isn't having to deal with it. And more importantly, the patient, when they're encephalopathic, are actually getting what they need rather than having to wait. Man, that's a real pro tip. All right. Well, I'm glad we like revisited that. So one of the final things that uh, I wanted to ask you about resources for younger interventionalists or trainees or, uh, you know, resources or papers that you found helpful first, like papers that you found helpful for technique and then other papers that are more in line with like, what does the data show us in terms of doing this? I mean, as you mentioned, there's a lot of papers on uh, pressure gradients, um, but what were some of like the, the high end, you know, the top three papers that have like helped you advance your practice? Um, you know, so one of the things we're always fighting against are the AASLD guidelines, right? Okay. And TIPS doesn't really fall into there. So, you know, what I like to do if I can is, you know, there, there is no great paper showing mortality benefit for uh, TIPS and ascites, but there are some decent meta-analyses that show a pretty good trend. And if you start throwing out the old data pre-Viator, mm-hmm. it, it becomes a little bit more convincing. 
Uh, I think you know, that all the hepatologists and all the gastroenterologists know about the 2010 New England Journal paper, right? Sure. You know, you do your early tips after upper GI bleeding and in your, you know, child C patients whose melts are decent, you are improving survival. Right. I think more importantly in your child B patients, you know, and this is, this is what I kind of hang my hat on. There's no improvement in survival, which is true. Uh, mm -hmm. But in those patients, there's also decrease in rebleeding, right? So it's, that's, that's a plus. And there's no difference in encephalopathy rates, which is huge. And like, yeah. I don't even hang my hat on that, but that's true. Uh, and there's a decrease in need for para and there's, you know, overall the patients tend to do well. And so, you know, people try to say, oh, you know what, that 2010 paper, that, that was just like an academic center and that's like the perfect situation. Uh, but I think more importantly, in 2019, there was a second paper that was published in hepatology and effectively the, the long and the short of that paper was, is if we, in those hospitals that actually followed those guidelines, how did the patients do? Mm -hmm. uh, and it not only did it validate the results in kind of technically, you know, it was a retrospective, but it was a real world look at things. But it also, again, highlighted the fact that these patients, if you're doing the B's and the C's, you know, yes, mortality is improved in the C's. But more importantly, if you're doing these B's, their symptoms of ascites, their symptoms of encephalopathy are no different and the re-bleeding is lower. Uh, and it just, it argues for a pretty aggressive approach to doing those bees in who bled or in really, in reality, doing the bees in general. Sure. And I think the next big jump that we have to make, and I think there are some people who are doing some uh, good work on looking at kind of the muscle density in the psoas, mm -hmm. um, is demonstrating that not only doing an early tips, does it get rid, you know, sometimes improve renal function, sometimes, but it actually improves nutrition. Sure. Uh, and I think that, you know, more and more of my hepatologists when someone is just cachectic are saying, you know what, maybe we should tips this patient just so they absorb better. Uh, and, you know, I've seen a lot of patients gain a pretty significant amount of weight uh, because of that. And I think that particularly in the alcoholic cirrhotics uh, or the hep C cirrhotics, not necessarily the gnashes, mm -hmm. um, that, that can go a long way. All right. Um, I know that like there's a, a still a lot to get to. I mean, like we alluded to a lot of it, like the yeah. gun side uh, tips, like the ice, like, yeah, yeah, the ice portal vein uh, recanalization. Um, but I was hoping that uh, we could wrap it up and then get you back on the show for like, you know, the senior level, like, you yeah. know, once you go from JV to varsity squad. Oh yeah. I mean, the, it's so probably the shit that you really wanted to talk about anyway. What? No, no, but this <laughs> is good, right? There are important things that I think about, like if I'd only known sure. to, work, to warn people about the lactulose, you know, yeah. it, I, I think about that and I'm like, probably the best thing I've done in my practice is prescribe lactulose ahead of time, yeah. which is completely meaningless for my ability <laughs> to do it tips. Right, right. You know, and like, you know, the, the other thing is like, you know, I warn people about that lower extremity edema and like, that's just not written anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like no one tells you like, oh, you're going to have, you know, if I tell if you're going to have pitting edema that is leaking out of your legs, but we're going to be able to help you with it. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, I think that, the willingness, I think our willingness to narrow down a tips needs to be a little bit greater. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, that that's another part maybe we can talk about in the future. Yeah, as like a revision, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, and then, you know, my general feeling is, and I, you know, I would not have said this two years ago, is that ice will be like getting ultrasound access in the groin. Like, wow. It, you used to scoff at it, right? You remember, like, even when you were training, Spies is like, no, you know, 
radiologists worth their salt will use ultrasound sure, for groin sure. access. Yeah. And now, like, if you don't get groin access and you have a complication, you're going to get sued. Right, right. Everyone's looking like, how'd you get access? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I using the ice, it's like from the ability to select the correct hepatic vein, like every single time, from the ability to access the hepatic vein. Yeah. Right? Like, you you try getting into a middle hepatic vein, it's not not cake. I mean, I did a middle to right yesterday, uh, and it would have taken me a little bit, you know, granted, I didn't have a fellow, but it would have taken me longer. Well, my early self would have taken a long time. Sure, sure, sure. Right. Whereas you can just look. And yeah, see. you know, yeah, you just know exactly where you're going. Like it. Accessing thrombosed portal veins like this. You know, I had a 30 year old on this year in clinic after this. You know, her entire portal mesenteric system was out. I did a direct stick, single stick, tips thrombolysis like an hour and a half. Wow. Because of ice. Yeah. When you pull it back, you can actually literally watch the uncovered portion slide back. Yeah. You know, you can actually see exactly where the confluence is and where your measurement is perfect. Um, and so all those little things that like make it from good to great happen with ice. And again, it's just fewer sticks. And you just know, you're like, like I looked at it yesterday and I looked at the right and I looked for right portal. There wasn't any. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even make a single pass on the right. Whereas I might've spent hours before. Right, right, yes. Yeah. Right, and instead I go middle to right and it's a single stick. Like, or maybe two, but like, that's, that's the sort of thing that ice gives you. Uh, but it takes time. And unfortunately I found that like, I just, I, I played with it for the sake of playing with it. Mm-hmm. And you know, the other sneaky, uh, great time to use ice is in tips or visions. Oh, really? Like sneaky, great. What happens is you, you, you're never really sure if you're in the right vein, it's going in the middle, it's flopping all over the place. Yeah. But you're not sure if you're engaged in that thrombose part of the tips. Okay. You know, if the tips is like chronically out, you can get like a little trans jug sheath in. And because the trans jug sheath can take the corner, it can also take the back end of a wire and it won't straighten everything out. And so now all of a sudden you can pop the cap without having to direct stick the tips and go retrograde. Okay. So I see. I've never at this to. For the last six years, I've never had to go and direct stick of tips to get a thrombose tips. I've always been able to get through antigrade because of the ice. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the ice has been like the big unlock to, like you said, to go from good to great. Yeah. Um, all right. So we'll definitely, we'll definitely tackle it. Um, and uh, we'll get with Dr. Emmett Linsky and talk about the, the really the next level tip stuff, which, you know, we really, that's like the fun stuff. Um, All right, but we'll wrap things up here Uh, to the audience. Thank you guys for listening. We covered a big topic today. Tips can be uh, daunting and difficult. So I hope that you found some of the discussion helpful um, with your upcoming patients and procedures. If you guys enjoyed the podcast but want more, please check out the show notes of this episode. Um, Those are usually a little bit delayed by a week, but we'll get them up on backtable.com and we'll mention any articles or papers or guidelines which were referenced during the show. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. This helps us in so many different ways. Plus, we'd love to get the feedback. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back Table Podcast. That will conclude part two of the Tips Podcast. Please stay tuned for part three.